Well, I've got a good show for you. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff uh, having to do with the end of days and what the apostles were taught and uh, what many people are saying today about the end times and how all this fits into the second coming of Christ. And we're going to delve right into it in this episode of the Urantia Radio Podcast. So stay tuned. And of course, a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Welcome to another edition of the Urantia Radio Podcast. Get underway in just a second. The gods of my caretakers, I shall not stray. Side by side, they lead me in the beautiful paths of glorious refreshing of life everlasting. I shall not, in this divine presence, want for food nor thirst for water. Though I go down into the valley of uncertainty, or ascend up into the worlds of doubt, though I move in loneliness or the fellows of my kind, though I triumph in the choirs of light or falter in the solitary places of the spheres, your good spirit shall minister to me, and your glorious angel will comfort me. We're going to play a little bit more of that uh, at the end. That's Tom Outerbridge and the Lord's Prayer. And uh, he was kind enough as a Urantia book reader to send me a copy of that, which I'll again play at the end. I just wanted to give you a brief introduction to Tom. Uh, And I don't know him well, and I appreciate him reaching out and and touching base with me and being generous enough to send uh, what I think is a pretty good song. And um, so his backstory is that in 1984... He broke his neck, and he became quadriplegic. And so he has learned to adjust even with that hardship in his life, and uh, and he loves making music. And uh, I'll put this up on the ranchoradio.net website if you want to download it and uh, have at it. Maybe uh, if you're a musician and you want to add some background or or just listen to it and get inspired uh, tom has given me the permission to uh, share it with the world and so that's what i want to do because it's so good and again i'll play it at the end of the current episode here so i also want to apologize uh, i'm usually more uh, consistent in making sure that i have a new podcast every week but i recently started on a new project which takes a lot of time and I don't want to ever rush a Urantia radio podcast just to create a Urantia radio podcast. I have to have like certain things that inspire me and want me to share the book. And so uh, I'm a little late, but I hope to get back on track. And I hope that you're busy during the summer and maybe you're not noticing. And uh, so anyway, my point is, is that I appreciate you stopping by and I apologize if you were expecting a podcast sooner because I'm usually more consistent. I usually have one a week, at least sometimes two. Uh, but as of late with a new project, it, you know, takes a little longer to get around to doing it. You know, you got family and vacations and everything else. You know how it is. Uh, I've been involved with Gabriel Reinberg over at the Metaverse. He's got some interesting things going on. And I keep saying, yeah, I'm going to get you on, I'm going to get you on. But, you know, he's in Israel and I'm here and uh, sometimes it's not easy. But he's got some exciting things going on with, with that. And we'll hopefully grab him at some point and get an update on what's going on with the metaverse. Um, also, I uh, will hopefully be able to have on a woman uh, 
by the name of Donna D'Angelo. And she uh, is an amazing person from what I can tell. And thanks to Byron Boletzos, uh, a familiar guest to these uh, podcasts, for turning me on to her Institute of Christ Consciousness. And you can find out more about what she does. But essentially, what what really got me excited is her work in Women Who Love Jesus, the untold story of the Women's Evangelistic Corps. And I never really gave it much thought. She's written a book about the untold stories of the 12 female apostles commissioned by Jesus. Now, uh, in a few minutes, this is a good example of what differentiates the Urantia book from other books, including the Bible. Not that it tries to take over the Bible or any other religious text. It is unique in its own presentation for reasons I'll explain shortly. But this is just one of those reasons. One of the great things about the the Urantia book and the fourth part of the book, The Life and Teachings of Jesus, is that there's so much more, we find that there's so much more to these stories that we all who've been grown up in a Judeo-Christian household or a culture, most of us are familiar with some of the stories, you know, Jesus running away from his parents, you know, when he ends up in a temple and he's, you know, talking to the smart religious leaders and his dad comes and takes him and says, how could you put us in that much, you know, uh, worry? How did you make us worry so much about you? And, uh, and that's when Jesus utters, I'm, I'm, I'm about doing about my father's business. Well, the Urantia book, that story is expounded. It's just, it's 10 times bigger. And there's a lot more to learn from that. Uh, the other stories, the Last Supper, we all are familiar with the breaking of the bread. It's so richly a part of our religious culture. But there's so much more that goes on. And, and that's the amazing thing about the Urantia book, is that it really does bring Jesus to life. And one aspect of that, I think, is Donna D'Angelo has, has tapped into is we really don't know that Jesus was really the first historical figure that gave women their respect that they deserved. And he tried to teach his apostles. Unfortunately, some of it, a lot of it got lost over the centuries. But, you know, the apostles, uh, we all know about the 12 male apostles, but what about the women that supported Jesus and, and who did so under an enormous pressure because women were second-class citizens, even in uh, Israel or the, the Palestine during the times of Jesus. But Jesus was really a progressive uh, personality in that regard. He, he taught and he treated women with the same respect that he treated and afforded men. And there's some great stories in there. And so we learn about, like, for example, Elizabeth, and we learn about Joanna and Martha, Jesus' sisters, Mary of Magdalene. We all know about her, but what's her real story? Uh, Milka, I think I pronounced that right, M-I-L-C-H-A, Milka, Rachel, Ruth, Re- Rebecca. Rebecca was the, uh, I think, would have been Jesus' girlfriend in, in, in what would consider teenage years. She had a crush on him, and that story is, elegantly told in the Arantia book. And so I uh, am going to be hopefully having Donna on so she could talk about what her, uh, what her book is all about and what inspired her to do it. But you know, today's 
uh, female today, to, today's modern woman wrapped up in, and, uh, in women power and assertion of rights and demanding to be treated equally. They would, I think, be very surprised to learn from the Arantia book just how progressive was in his attitude towards women. And, and I put that in the plus column, don't you? All right, so before we begin with, with I, what I want to talk about, uh, I want to read today's thought of the day because it kind of plays into it. Early, uh, early evolution is characterized by the survival of the biologically fit, but later civilizations are better promoted by intelligent cooperation, understanding, fraternity, and spiritual brotherhood. And so with that, I want to, I've been giving a lot of thought to that section in the Arantia book, paper 176, where there's a lot of discussion going on about the, the end times. Jesus is coming back, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and it is no doubt today a lot of Christians, a lot of people who are of religious faith, really do believe that we are in historic times. Something is about to happen. We're seeing a lot of evil in the world, more than maybe more than we ever did. And that probably is because technology allows us to see that. I mean, we have more than a dozen 24-hour news channels now. they got to get their news. they got to report on something. And here we are, all flipping through our phones, trying to get the latest news from social media. So no doubt, we're seeing more, and, and consequently, I think we're seeing more evil. And then also, you have social media that promotes evil. We found out this week that I think the second most popular, third most popular social media app was actually being used openly to uh, promote pedophilia, which is, I was shocked when I heard that. And uh, the, the news media didn't seem too bothered by it, or at least they didn't report very much on it. But that's just an example of, you know, we're seeing, you know, the, the human trafficking issue. There's a new movie coming out with Jim Caviezel where he talks, where he exposes the truth about how much human trafficking. I mean, there's no question that this world is going through an ideological change and morality is, is, is being judged because morality based on whose morality, on whose customs, on whose ideas, uh, you know, and, and with that, the antecedents of that is we're having new discussions and conversations about sexuality, what's appropriate, what isn't appropriate. Children are involved now in this discussion. Uh, and then, you know, there's also materialism. You know, materialism, as I define it, is who is actually going to have the dominant culture moving forward. Now that we're all connected by the Internet of Things, uh, who will be the dominant players of civilization? Who will set the tone for the next two, three hundred years? You know, we look back and we can see that uh, when the, the colonies formed and broke off from England, uh, the United States ended up being, you know, the tone setter for the next two, three hundred years. Uh, and the culture of the West has certainly had an, a tremendous impact on everything we can think of about civilization. But what about the next 200 years? Who's going to be in control then? Will it be a materialistic world? Will it be a fragmented world? Will it be a world full of paganism? Uh, and maybe perhaps more criminality? 
I mean, we're on the precipice of something big. And that's part and parcel why I think the Arantia book was presented at this time. Even even Byron mentioned it numerous times in his first book and his new book that we just talked about. The Arantia book may be a response to that critical juncture that Americans and the rest of the world find ourselves in. And because a lot of people do believe that these are the end times and something big is about to happen, uh, what they're not looking at is the fact that the big thing already did happen. We got a revelation in 1935, and it was printed in 1955. And uh, recently I, was on, I, I had written a blog about atheism and the rise of atheism and what causes atheism and how could, how, could we had, how could we get the atheist to shake him and say, look, you're wrong, there is something. And, of course, the response I got from the article was from an atheist who said, ah, uh, just more playing on words. You know, and, and I took offense to that because why am I wasting my time trying to get an atheist to believe in the Arantia book? What do I care? Well, according to the master, we're supposed to care. Those are the people that need to be saved, saved from themselves, from eternal non-existence. Maybe they'll get a chance on Mansonia 1 or 2 to change their mind. But I always am curious about people who, you know, who, who just don't have anywhere in their heart for this belief that there's something greater beyond them and that it's not just all about the here and now. That's part of the reason I think that the Arantia book appeals to me is because it does answer all of those questions. Questions that I know my fellow brothers and sisters have, but they're too hard-headed. They don't want to take the chance to open up this 2,000-page book and, and, and read inside what it has to say. And the Christians, they're happy with what they've got. They're not going to change anything. Although there's a new book out by Miles Lucas, who's a pastor, I think, and he talks about how even Christianity is being compromised by political correctness, or what we commonly call wokeness. The, Angel uh, the Angelican Church of, of Africa, the entire country, continent of Africa, has broken off from the Church of England, because the Church of England is preaching things like homosexual uh, homosexuality is okay, transgenderism is okay, uh, abortions, we won't go there, and many conservative churches saying, wait a minute, these, these are important tenets that we have to hold on to. There has to be rules. And uh, so it's a, it's a tough time to be a religious person these days. You're going to get it from somewhere. If you're a Christian, you're going to get attacked by the left. If you're a non-Christian, you're going to get attacked by people who, you know, think that you're crazy or evil. So no doubt there's a lot of in-time conversation going on. But let me read to you. From Matthew twenty five fourteen, this is the New International Version. There, this is pertains to uh, what the Master talked about in the Arantia book in one seventy six. Jesus, because Peter had asked him, you know, when are you coming back? You you tell us you're coming back. Tell us when that when's when is that going to happen? So we're going to talk about the second coming, and the Matthew version from twenty five fourteen through thirty is relatively short. It's a page and a half. And, uh, and I'm going to read it to you. So we'll start with the parable of the bags of gold from the NIV of Matthew 25, 14, the New Testament. 
Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. And this is Jesus giving a parable. And he's trying to explain the nature of his second coming to his apostles. And so Jesus says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called the servants and entrusted the wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag dug a hole and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five bags of gold brought the other five, said, Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And his master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would at least have some of it back with interest. And the master continues, So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags, for whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even that which they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's the story from Matthew 25, uh, 14 14 to 30. So now let us read from paper 176, the expounded version. And this illustrates why the Arantia book sometimes can be an added uh, expounded story that we can get, gather so much more meaning. And and remember, Matthew's uh, account wasn't from Matthew. It was from one of Matthew's you know, students, or it came from Luke. There's a story about how this story, this particular story that I'm sharing with you in the Arantia book, and we may get to it, and it, and it explains how this particular story got kind of garbled in the New Testament version. It got edited, and it was partially right, but not quite accurate. I mean, the essence of the story still comes through. What Jesus is trying to teach is still very relevant, but listen to the difference of the the way the stories are told. On several occasions, Jesus had made statements which led his hearers to infer that while he intended presently to leave this world, he would most certainly return to consummate the work of the heavenly kingdom. As the conviction grew on his followers that he was going to leave them, and after he had departed from this world, it was only natural for all believers to lay fast 
hold upon these promises to return. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ thus became an early incorporated uh, into the teachings of the Christians, and almost every subsequent generation of disciples has devoutly believed this truth and has confidently looked forward to his sometime coming. If they were to part with their master and teacher, how much more did these first disciples and the apostles grasp that, that this promise to return, and they lost no time in associating the predicted destruction of Jerusalem with his promised second coming. And they continued thus to interpret his words, notwithstanding that throughout this evening of instruction at Mount, Mount Olivet, the master took particular plans to prevent just such a mistake. So from Matthew 24, which is where we get this story, here is the version as it's told in the Arantia book. In further answers to Peter's question, Jesus said, Why do you still look for the Son of Man to sit upon the throne of David and expect that this material dreams of the Jews will be fulfilled? Have I not told you all these years that my kingdom is not of this world? The things which you now look down upon are coming to an end. But this will be a new beginning out of which the gospel of the kingdom will go to all of the world, and this salvation will spread to all peoples. And when the kingdom shall have come to its full fruition, be assured that the Father in heaven will not fail to visit you with an enlarged revelation of truth and an enhanced demonstration of righteousness, even as he has already bestowed upon this world him who became the prince of darkness, and then Adam, who was followed by Melchizedek, and in these days the Son of Man. And so will my Father continue to manifest his mercy and show forth his love, even to the dark and evil world. So also will I, after my Father has invested me with all power and authority, continue to follow your fortunes and to guide in the efforts of the kingdom by the presence of my Spirit, who shall shortly be poured out upon all flesh. Even though I shall thus be present with you in spirit, I also promise that I will some day, sometime, return to this world where I have lived this life in the flesh and achieve the experience of simultaneously revealing God to man and leading man to God. Very soon must I leave you and take up the work of the Father has entrusted to my hands. But be of good courage, for I will sometime return. In the meantime, my spirit of truth of a universe shall comfort and guide you. You behold me now in weakness and in the flesh, but when I return it shall be with power and in the spirit. The eyes of the flesh beholds the Son of Man in the flesh, but only the eyes of the spirit will behold the Son of Man glorified by the Father and appearing on earth in his own time. But the times of the reappearing of the Son of Man are known only in the councils of paradise. Not even the angels of heaven know when this will occur. However, you should understand that when this gospel of the kingdom shall have been proclaimed to all of the world for the salvation of all peoples, and when the fullness of the age has come to pass, the Father will send you another dispensational bestowal, or else the Son of Man will return to adjudge the age. So he's saying that there's going to have to be a time when the world becomes more spiritual before this next revelation occurs, whether it be another bestowal son or he himself. And he's making that claim that I'm not sure how this is going to play out. This will ultimately decide it in paradise, on the council of paradise. 
the Trinity will have a say in this. And thus, concerning the travail of Jerusalem about which I have spoken to you, even this generation will not pass away until my words are fulfilled. But concerning the times of the coming again of the Son of Man, no one in heaven or on earth may presume to speak. But you should be wise regarding the ripening of an age. You should be alert to discern the signs of the times. You should know when the fig tree show its tender branches and puts forth its leaves that summer is near. Likewise, when the world has passed through the long winter of material-mindedness, and you discern the coming of the spiritual springtime of a new dispensation, should you know that the summertime of a new visitation draws near. That's the Arantia version of the original, which appears in Matthew 24, 42. But what is the significance of this teaching have to do with the coming of the Son of Man? So at this point, Jesus is telling, look, there's two different stories here. You're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and all things becoming new again and the gospel will spread. And he's giving a forecast of the next 2,000 years, all of which would happen, the evolving of the Christian church. But he says, but, but what does that have to do with me coming back? That is still going to happen. Mankind still has to become more spiritual regardless of where I am or if I come back. He says, Do you not perceive that with each of you is called to lay down his life to struggle and pass through the portal of death? You stand in the immediate presence of judgment and that you are face to face with the facts of a new dispensation of service in the eternal plan of the infinite Father. What the whole world must face as a literal fact at the end of an age, you as individuals must each most certainly face as a personal experience when you reach the end of your natural life and thereby pass on to be confronted with the conditions and demands inherent in the next revelation of the eternal progression of the Father's kingdom. So here he's saying, you know, you're worried about the end of of humanity, but you could die tomorrow. And you're going to go through that tomorrow just as the earth will someday go through it as a collective. Of all the discourses which the masters gave his apostles, none ever became so confused in their minds as this one. Given this Tuesday evening on the Mount of Olives regarding the twofold subject of the destruction of Jerusalem and his own second coming, there was therefore little agreement between the subsequent written accounts based on the memories of what the master said on this extraordinary occasion. Consequently, when the records were left blank concerning much of what was said that Tuesday evening, there grew up many traditions and very early in the second century, a Jewish apocalyptic about the Messiah written by one Celta, S-E-L-T-A, who was attached to the court of the emperor Caligula, was bodily copied into the Matthew Gospel and subsequently added in part to Mark and Luke records. It was in these writings of Celta that the parable of the ten virgins appeared. No part of the Gospel record ever suffered such confusing misconstruction as this evening's teaching. But the Apostle John never became thus confused. And it's interesting because the Apostle John is the one who ended up writing Revelations, which is also, in the book of Revelations, very descriptive of the end of times. Urantia book says in paper 176, As these thirteen men resumed their journey toward the camp, they were speechless and under great emotional tension. Judas had finally confirmed his decision to abandon his associates. 
It was a late hour when David Zebedee, John Mark, and a number of the leading disciples welcomed Jesus and the twelve to the new camp. But the apostles did not want to sleep. They wanted to know more about the destruction of Jerusalem, the master's departure, and the end of the world. As they gathered about the campfire, some twenty of them, Thomas asked, Since you are to return to finish the work of the kingdom, what should be our attitude while you are away on the Father's business? As Jesus looked them over by the firelight, he said, And even you, Thomas, failed to comprehend what I have been saying. Have I not all this time taught you that your connection with the kingdom is spiritual and individual? Wholly a matter of personal experience in the spirit of the faith realization that you are a son of God. What more shall I say? The downfall of nations, the crash of empires, the destruction of the unbelieving Jews, the end of an age, even the end of the world, what have these things to do with one who believes this gospel and who has hid his life in the surety of the eternal kingdom? You who are God-knowing and gospel-believing have already received the assurances of eternal life. Since your lives have been lived in the Spirit and for the Father, nothing could be of serious concern to you. Kingdom builders, the accredited citizens of the heavenly worlds, are not to be disturbed by temporal upheavals or perturbed by terrestrial cataclysms. What does it matter to you who believe this gospel of the kingdom if nations overturn, the age ends, or all things visible crash, since you know that your life is the gift of the Son and that it is eternally secure in the Father? Having lived the temporal life by faith and having yielded the fruits of the Spirit as the righteousness of loving service for your fellows, you can confidently look forward to the next step in the eternal career with the same survival faith that has carried you through your first and earthly adventure in sonship with God. Each generation of believers shall carry on their work in view of the possible return of the Son of Man, exactly as each individual believer carries forward his life work in view of inevitable and ever-impending natural death. When you have by faith once established yourself as a son of God, nothing else matters as regards the surety of survival. But make no mistake, this survival faith is a living faith, and it increasingly manifests the fruits of the divine spirit which first inspired it in the human heart. That you have once accepted sonship in the heavenly kingdom will not save you in the face of the knowing and persistent rejection of those truths which have to do with the progressive spiritual fruit-bearing of the sons of God in the flesh. You who have been with me in the Father's business on earth can even now desert the kingdom if you find that you love not the way of the Father's service for mankind. As individuals and as a generation of believers, hear me while I speak a parable. There was a certain great man who, before starting out on a long journey to another country, called all his trusted servants before him and delivered into their hands all his goods. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another, and so on, down through the entire group of honored stewards. To each he entrusted his goods according to their several abilities, and then he set out on his journey. When their Lord had departed, his servants set themselves to work to gain profits from the wealth entrusted to them. Immediately he who had received the five talents began to trade with them, and very soon 
had made a profit of another five talents. In like manner, he who had received two talents soon had gained two more. And so did all of these servants make gains for their master, except him who had received but one talent. He went away by himself and dug a hole in the earth where he hid his Lord's money. Presently the Lord of the servants unexpectedly returned and called upon his stewards for a reckoning. And when they had been called before their master, he who had received the five talents came forward with money which had been entrusted to him and brought five additional talents, saying, Lord, you have given me five talents to invest, and I am glad to present five other talents as my gain. And then his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will now set you steward as steward over many. Enter forthwith into the joy of your Lord. And then he had received two talents, came forward, saying, Lord, you delivered into my hand two talents. Behold, I have gained those other two talents. And his Lord then said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have also been faithful over a few things, and I will now set you over many. Enter you into the joy of your Lord. And then there came to the accounting he who had received the one talent. This servant came forward, saying, Lord, I knew you and realized that you were a shrewd man and that you expected gains where you had not personally labored. Therefore was I afraid to risk aught of that which is entrusted to me. I safely hid your talents in the earth, but here it is. You now have what belongs to you. But as the Lord answered, You are an indolent and slothful steward. By your own words, you confess that you knew I would require of you an accounting with reasonable profit, such as your diligent fellow servants have this day rendered. Knowing this, you ought, therefore, to have at least put my money into the hands of the bankers that on my return I might have received my own with interest. And then to the chief steward this Lord said, Take away this one talent from this unprofitable servant and give it to him who has the ten talents. To everyone who has, more shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him who has not, even that which he has shall be taken away. Should you go about the work of the Father's business, now and henceforth, even forevermore, carry on until I come. In faithfulness do that which is entrusted to you, and thereby shall you be ready for the reckoning call of death. And having thus lived for the glory of the Father and the satisfaction of the Son, you shall enter with joy and exceedingly great pleasure in the eternal service of the everlasting kingdom. Truth is living truth. The spirit of truth is ever leading the children of light into new realms of spiritual reality and divine service. You are not given truth to crystallize into settled, safe, and honored forms. Your revelation of truth must be so enhanced by passing through your personal experience that new beauty and actual spiritual gains will be disclosed to all who behold your spiritual fruits, and in consequence, therefore, are led to glorify the Father who is in heaven. Only those faithful servants who thus grow in the knowledge of the truth and who thereby develop the capacity for divine appreciation of spiritual realities can ever hope to, quote, enter fully into the joy of their Lord. What a sorry sight for successive generations of professed followers of Jesus to say regarding their stewardship of divine truth. Here, Master, is the truth you committed to us a hundred or a thousand years ago. We have lost nothing. We have faithfully preserved all you gave us. We have allowed no changes to be made to that which you taught us. 
Here is the truth you gave us. But such a plea concerning spiritual indolence will not justify the barren steward of truth in the presence of the Master. In accordance with the truth committed to your hands will the Master of Truth require a reckoning. In the next world, you will be asked to give an account of the endowments and stewardship of this world. Whether inherent talents are few or many, a just and merciful reckoning must be faced. If endowments are used only in selfish pursuits and no thought is bestowed upon the higher duty of obtaining increased yields of the fruits of the Spirit, as they are manifested in the ever-expanding service of men and the worship of God, such selfish stewards must accept the consequences of their deliberate choosing. And how much like all selfish mortals was this unfaithful servant with the one talent in that he blamed his slothfulness directly upon his Lord. How prone is man when he is confronted with the failures of his own making put the blame upon others, oftentimes upon those who least deserve it. Said Jesus that night as they went to their rest, Freely have you received, therefore freely should you give the truth of heaven. And in the giving will this truth multiply and show forth the increasing light of saving grace, even as you have ministered it. Paper 176, Section 4, Paragraph 1. Of all the Master's teachings, no one phase has been so misunderstood as his promise sometime to come back in person to this world. It is not strange that Michael should be interested in sometime returning to the planet whereon he experienced his seventh and last bestowal as a mortal of the realm. It is only natural to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, now sovereign ruler of a vast universe, would be interested in coming back, not only once, but even many times, to the world wherein he lived such a unique life and finally won for himself the Father's unlimited bestowal of universe power and authority. Urantia will eternally be one of the seven nativity spheres of Michael in the winning of universe sovereignty. Jesus did on numerous occasions and to many individuals declare his intention of returning to this world, and his followers awakened to the fact that their master was not going to function as a temporal deliverer. And as they listened to his predictions of the overthrow of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation, they naturally began to associate his promised return with these catastrophic events. Do we do that today? Do we look at all the catastrophe going on and say, oh, must be end times. Jesus is just coming. Continuing on, but when the Roman armies leveled the walls of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and dispersed the Judean Jews, and still the Master did not reveal himself in power and glory, his followers began the formulation of that belief which eventually associated the second coming of Christ with the end of an age, even with the end of the world. Jesus promised to do two things after he ascended to the Father, and after all power in heaven and on earth had been placed in his hands, he promised first to send into the world and in his stead another teacher, the Spirit of Truth. And this he did on the day of Pentecost. Second, he most certainly promised his followers that he would sometime personally return to this world. But he did not say how, where, or when he would revisit this planet of his bestowal experience in the flesh. On one occasion he intimated that, whereas the eyes of flesh had beheld him when he lived here in the flesh, on his return, at least on one of his possible visits, he would be discerned only by the eyes of spiritual faith. 
many of us, and this is from the writers, the midwayers who put this narrative together, many of us are inclined to believe that Jesus will return to Urantia many times during the ages to come. We do not have his specific promise to make these plural visits, but it seems most probable that he will, that he who carries among his universe titles that of planetary prince of Urantia, will many times visit the world whose conquest conferred such a unique title upon him. We most positively believe that Michael will again come in person to Urantia, but we have not the slightest idea as to when or in what manner he may choose to come. Will his second advent on earth be timed to occur in connection with the terminal judgment of this present age, either with or without the associated appearance of a magisterial son? Will he come in connection with the termination of some subsequent Urantian age? Will he come unannounced and as an isolated event? We do not know. Only one thing we are certain of, that is, when he does return, all the world will likely know about it. For he must come as the supreme ruler of a universe and not as an obscure babe of Bethlehem. But if every eye is to behold him, and if only spiritual eyes are to discern his presence, then must his advent be long deferred. So they're saying there that if if it's true and he's coming back and all the world will see him, it's going to be a long time before all of the world is ready to see him. That's my interpretation. And then there's finally, there's this. You would do well, therefore, to disassociate the Master's personal return to earth from any and all set events or settled epics. We are sure of only one thing. He has promised to come back. We have no idea as to when he will or the way he will fulfill his promise or in what connection. As far as we know, he may appear on earth any day and he may not come until age after age has passed and been duly adjudicated by his associated sons of the Paradise Corps. The second advent of Michael on earth is an event of tremendous sentimental value to both midwayers and humans. But otherwise, it is of no immediate moment to midwayers and of no more practical importance to human beings than the common event of natural death, which so suddenly precipitates mortal man into the immediate grasp of that succession of universe events which leads directly to the presence of this same Jesus. The sovereign ruler of our universe, the children of light, are all destined to see him. And it is of no serious concern whether we go to him or whether he should come first to us. Be you therefore only ready to welcome him on earth as he stands ready to welcome you in heaven. We confidently look for his glorious appearing even for repeated comings, but we are wholly ignorant as to how, when, or in what connection he is destined to appear. So they give us the story, the account, and then they throw in some suggestions, some ideas on what we should consider. And that wraps up paper 176 on the Master's Second Coming. And it also brings us to a close of this edition of the Arantia Radio Podcast. And as promised, I said I would play this wonderful tune from a gentleman who has been reading the Urantia book for a long, long time. A guy by the name of Tom Atterbridge takes us away. And again, if you ever want to contact us on the Urantia Radio podcast, you can do so. Radio at gmail.com. Until next time, God bless and have a blessed day. 
gods are my caretakers, I shall not stray. Side by side they lead me in the beautiful paths and glorious refreshing of life everlasting. I shall not in this divine presence want for food nor thirst for water. Though I go down into the valley of uncertainty or ascend up into the worlds of doubt, Though I move in loneliness or the fellows of my kind, though I triumph in the choirs of light or falter in the solitary places of the spheres, your good spirit shall minister to me and your glorious angel will comfort me. Though I descend into the depths of darkness and death itself, I shall not doubt you nor fear you, for I know that in the fullness of time and the glory of your name, you will raise me up to sit with you on the battlements on high. from evil, and increasingly make us perfect like yourself. 